Hi, everyone. We're back for part two of our Limkin episode with Marky Mutchler. Marky is a PhD student at the University of Chicago and is studying Limkins. In part one, we talked about how unique and amazing Limkins are and talked about their range. Recently, one was found dead in the suburbs of Chicago and was brought to the Field Museum where John and Shannon work. In part two, we'll talk about what John, Shannon, and Marky have learned about the Limkin that was brought to the Field Museum and what the outlook is for Limkins as some have begun to venture further north. It's super fascinating. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Okay, let's grab our binoculars and get into it. That's dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> That's dramatic. I used to say, what about um, the Limkin? Was it at Melody Farm, RJ? Or was that at Middle Fork Savannah, the one that we read about? I believe it was Melody Farm, the one that, that uh, died recently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Marky, did you know what about that? Did, did you, were you involved with that at all? Not the, the death, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that bird, that bird is in the Field Museum collection. It's already wow. been prepped and, and it's, it's neat. You know, we did some interesting things when that bird came in. One of the first things we got was an email from a, a former postdoc of Shannon's, um, who's now curator of birds at the Philadelphia Academy of Sciences. And he had already heard via the birding network that this bird had unfortunately died and he works on feather lice. And so he was desperately interested in having us look and see whether we could get any feather lice off the bird. And we did. And Limpkins have a whole, you know, given their systematic position and their lack of close relationships to anything, Limpkins have a, a whole bunch of feather lice that are, that are unique to Limpkins. And so it'll be interesting to see how those feather lice cope with what limpkins are doing with their distributions in these situations. It's probably not a good time for a feather louse to be on a really cold limpkin out in <laughs> central Illinois in the winter. Was there anything else from the specimen then that came in? Like, can you kind of walk through what that's like? I mean, it's a bird that's not local to Chicago, to the Chicago area, and you get a bird like that that passes away. What happens when you get word of that and then it comes to the field museum? Yeah, I would say that anytime that happens, there's always a special feeling of making sure that we do a really good job of getting as much data and prepping the specimen as well as we possibly can. And, you know, limpkins are not things that are going to come into the collection very, very often. And so, again, trying to, to save things like trunk skeletons in this case and, and internal organs in this case um, were something that made sense for us to do. Yeah, so that bird was brushed on a piece of white paper so that whatever was living on it, we could capture um, and store in alcohol so that it could be studied. So that would be sent, uh, any feather lice would be sent to Jason Wexstein uh, in Philadelphia to see what was on it. Uh, and there could be other things on it too. I don't know what else was on it. But then it'll be carefully prepped. Tissues will be saved. Um, lots of different kinds of tissues might be saved depending on what someone might be interested in because if we want to know what's being expressed in the gut or the eye, what genes are being expressed, you have to have those tissues in order to know. So we can do things that are more than just genomic analyses from that. Um, so at, we have 142. Now we would have 143, but that thing hasn't been completely gone through the catalog process yet. 
uh, of these specimens in our collections, and most of them are pretty old. So this this is a really interesting record because the only way to document what they're doing, whether they're getting bigger or smaller through time, whether there are any changes in their color or their beaks or anything like that is to have comparative material. And getting modern comparative material is not the easiest thing in the world. So this bird will contribute a lot to what we know about um, habitat change. I mean, we're going to want to know what is it about these birds that makes them wander like this. Um, and and modern specimens will help us get at some of those questions. I was wondering for I feel like um, I think I feel like a lot of people in the Chicago area grew attached to probably that limpkin and like the one we saw at, at the Botanic Garden. And I don't even know if that if they could be the same bird. Who knows? But um, did they? When you have a bird come in like that, it does anyone perform like a like an autopsy? Repping a specimen, you're essentially opening yourself up to be able to look at all the internal organs and try to figure out things like that. And so that my recollection is on this particular bird, there was no real indication of what uh, actually killed it at the end. My guess is it was during that incredibly cold spell we had back in, in what was it, late January. And, and so it was almost certainly just succumbed to the elements. And I, I mean, I was telling Shannon there was... During that cold snap, one of my favorite, not favorite, one of the most curious records that somebody posted was from up in northern Minnesota. Uh, their dad went out hunting someplace and he came back to them and said, hey, look, I took a picture of this bird out along this stream where I was hunting. And there was this picture of a limpkin completely covered by snow and ice. You know, And, and you just realize what these birds were going through for that period in a situation where that's definitely not what they've uh, they're typically evolved to to deal with, and so I, I to me the, the the most amazing thing is despite all that cold weather we had, some of those birds have still made it through. And then the other thing about limpkins, which I find absolutely mysterious, we keep talking about the what we'd really like to do is see people catch a few and put some transmitters on them such that they could be we could track their movements. Because there was a situation, I think, in Iowa at the end of the, the summer where I think there were five at one place. Well, I don't think those birds got there together. I think they probably ended up there after moving around landscapes incredibly. And so it's there's just a lot to learn about what they're doing. And Amanda, we can often tell why a bird died by looking at it inside. So sometimes birds can be super emaciated, like very skinny, and um, there's probably some aspect of starvation, whether that is because the bird is over-parasitized or has something else such that it can't eat properly. You can see um, the evidence of collisions, building collisions, glass collisions in the brains of, of, of the birds. You see hemorrhaging. Um, you can see if there's a broken bone that hasn't completely healed. You can often tell if there's some kind of infection uh, that has happened. And you can see, this is gross too, but some birds are really heavily parasitized and there's lots of worms inside of their bodies. And uh, yeah, so you can tell sometimes, but of course we're not veterinarians and we don't do detailed 
pathological examinations of tissues or um, any kind of DNA sequencing of viruses or bacteria that uh, that a bird might might have the way it would happen in uh, a veterinarian's office if if it were being necropsied in that way. Yeah, I think one other kind of interesting thing with that with Limkin is part of the the story of how I got interested in, in working with Limkin was this one bird in Missouri that showed up nearby and I believe it showed up in November-ish. And through the winter, like we had a couple really cold snaps, really big cold snaps where there was snow and it was well below freezing, probably below zero at some points, um, high winds. And this bird was on an exposed man-made pond surrounded by a very new neighborhood. So there were like no trees, no vegetation, hardly anything. And this bird was out there every single day. And we had uh, someone in the neighborhood who was the one who alerted birders to its presence in the first place uh, would check on it every day. And this cold snap happened and the bird was fine. It was still feeding. It was hanging out. It did have ice on its feathers at one point, um, but seemed to be doing its thing and kicking along and, and handling the cold. And then it warmed up. And one day we get a call from the person who lives there who's been watching it that the bird is dead dead in their backyard, essentially. And so the bird was collected, taken to a museum, and uh, the bird seemed healthy. It, ha it wasn't emaciated, it didn't have internal parasites that were obvious, and it didn't seem like there was any blunt force trauma, like um, it had been hit by something or hit a power line. But they found a gash on the back of its head uh, that wasn't consistent with like a mammal encounter, like a raccoon or something that had gone for it. Um, but rather, it, it's a fun little story. There's uh, there's nothing to substantiate this, but uh, they think that one of the local great blue herons attacked it. Um, and there are several photos, actually, of these extra-limital limpkin where great blue herons are harassing the heck out of them and chasing them around. So it's, again, it's a fun little story with no like observational support or anything directly to support um, that being the case of how it died, but it's an interesting thing nonetheless. This, that seems like the thing that killed it was this interesting gash to the back of its head. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It's that so plausible. If you look right, at it's a like Aaron's <laughs> beak, I mean, that thing is dangerous. Definitely. <laughs> and when I had seen the limkin there in Missouri, I had definitely seen the great blue heron. Um, that was around that pond was not happy with that limpkin and often would chase it around. So who knows for sure, but it's an interesting thing to think about. We love bird murder stories. Well, we should talk about shrikes someday if you want to talk about murder birds. Do you know what shrikes do? No. They impale their prey on spikes. Oh. <laughs> and you can see them on fences now because humans have put um, things that make it easier for them to to poke a, some other thing through. And so, yeah, they display them and then come back and eat them. So you can see fences with all these dead birds. And the, 
The shrikes have just impaled them on these things. So normally they're using well, parts of plants, right, to impale them <laughs> on. But humans have made them a little bit more dramatic and part of a horror story. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is crazy. We have to do that sometime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, I was curious for Limpkins because that story when it the Limpkin and Melody Farms passed away was, you know, kind of made its rounds. And, you know, I think some people thought maybe that they weren't going to survive or do well, but it sounds like actually a lot of them are able to thrive in these colder weathers or at least make it through the winter. I mean, do you think it's feasible that they could be moving north and there could be larger populations spreading in different parts of the country that, you know, I mean, is it going to be a success story as long as they can find a food? food it's so it's interesting because the case with this movement right now and these birds surviving through the winter is that I think the last couple years where these birds have been moving in incredible numbers, it seems like uh, this might be the first winter where birds have continued right through it. Um, I think in previous winters, either birds have just disappeared, um, either this being they passed away and no one found them, or they've moved and we don't know where. Uh, I, this might be the first winter with uh, confirmed records continuing straight through the winter so far. Um, for the most part, these past four what years of limpkins, um, usually the birds kind of show up at new places in like April and May and can seem to kind of continue through October, November, and then are just gone. And it often in these past couple of years, when they've been gone, it hasn't even corresponded with extreme cold weather or anything. Um, sometimes birds disappear in September, October. And so the other interesting thing with all of this is that for the work I've been doing is we um, age the limpkins. And it doesn't seem to be supporting any, at least it's only been a couple of years again, but it doesn't seem to be supporting any situation where limpkins arrive and stay through um, the winter. So this this winter in itself seems to be something new as well. And who knows what they do, right? If Are they going to breed? Do they find, they first off, they have to find mates. Then they have to find a you know, place where they can actually put their nests. And, and then, so that could be considered a success story. But the fact that they're moving here means that the winters are getting really mild in the eastern part of the U.S., right? So that's kind of a trauma story as well, um, a reflection of changing climates. We don't know how resilient these birds are to this. Uh, you know, moving somewhere is one thing. Surviving and thriving is, you know, another thing. So I, I find myself thinking, oh, it's really cool. I could have a limpkin in my backyard. But then I'm like, what the hell? A limpkin's not supposed to be in my backyard. But I think when, you know, one of the interesting things is you, you go down to southern Illinois and along the Mississippi there, you've got flooded areas, you've got a large number of invertebrates, and, and that may be a place where they actually could establish a population. I was going to say, just how exciting is it to you like to have this is what you're studying and there's like a drastic change happening, like literally right when you're kind of in the middle of all of this. I mean, I feel like that's got to just be on a personal level, be something that's like... <laughs> very fascinating and fulfilling to like see something like that happen like literally while you're in the middle of studying all this well i would say that 
it's more so um I wish it was like that. I would say the story is more oh. so I got into Limkin because of the movement happening. Um Okay. <laughs> it it definitely was spurred by like that that Limkin that passed away in Missouri, which was already kind of the first time when these Limkins were moving. Um I the thing with the Limkin is we kind of alluded to this earlier, is that there's really not that much information um about these birds, even within the US. Uh, there's definitely a couple dedicated researchers who have spent majority of their careers working with Limkin, and but that's about it. Um, I would say that there's not a ton of work that's happening. I would say I was also pretty interested in Limkin. I guess I would I, I say it's like during this movement, but it's kind of been in two phases, right? So in 2017, I was living in Louisiana, and that's when the first sort of Limkin outside of Florida and along the Gulf Coast shows up, and that was a big thing. And then within that year, there was a second one at the same location, and they had chicks immediately. So it was sort of a situation of a, a one-two. First bird shows up, suddenly they're breeding, now we have a bunch. And then like 2018, 2019, suddenly we have Limkin showing up in the southeastern U.S. and breeding pretty quickly, like a really quick turnaround. And um, I was definitely interested in them at the time, but I wasn't particularly studying them. And the interesting case, again, with the Louisiana limkin is that you talk to the people who live in the bayous and the wetlands in southeastern Louisiana, especially, and they'll, they'll pull up phone, uh, their phone with photos and be like, oh, yeah, I saw a ton of these limkin like a couple years before the birders were like, oh, they're here in 2017. Um, and sure enough, they'll have photos of like dozens of limkins lining these remote uh, wetlands bayous and, and stream sides and everything and so they've definitely been in the gulf away from florida for longer than uh what has been suspected so i i, I think it's, it would be a cool story if it was i had been studying them well before but unfortunately it's definitely more spurred <laughs> by the fact that uh, it's like oh they're moving and there's like not anything being done and i'm hoping that the work that i'm working on will will spur more people to, to to study these birds, put transmitters on their backs and see it, what number of birds are actually moving, where are they going, what are they doing, um, how they're moving, how they're dealing with weather and whatnot. I wanted to ask Marky, so um, you made me wonder, so the birds that are like in the southeastern u.s like louisiana and stuff they're actually mating like those are newer ones that are mating the ones that are you know coming up into the midwest like has there been any any evidence of those like mating like in kansas or missouri or illinois or wisconsin or whatever and also if birds are coming up here and they're like potentially making it year round do you like are they assuming they're gonna mate because like i mean do all birds like that's part of the plan that they're gonna mate um so in terms of confirmed records there has been nothing confirmed outside of um states with apple snails and where these birds are with apple snails uh that doesn't mean that they aren't Again, we kind of mentioned this, despite being this sort of large bird that's very loud, um, they often are in 
not always, but they often are in some more inaccessible locations, even in places like Missouri um, or Kansas or Iowa. Like, for example, in Missouri, there's this um, this really large wetland where several limpkin have suddenly appeared. And a lot of people think that they might be breeding, but it's just so inaccessible, we can't really see what they're doing. In terms of the work that I've done, I've seen a couple instances where there are definitely juvenile birds showing up way or at least showing up way further um, north outside of any known breeding records. So either this could be a case of early dispersal of a, a juvenile bird or there's breeding happening further north than we know of. But there's there's been nothing confirmed outside of um, Gulf states in southeastern U.S. Oh, you think they're hanging out with the ivory-billed woodpeckers uh, <laughs> in the swamps and bayous? So that makes, this is, I'm going to go on my ivory-billed woodpecker rant again. But the fact that these, that random people who live in those places and visit those places have pictures of limpkins, many of them, goes to show that there's no way in hell uh, ivory-billed woodpeckers are hanging out in the bayous without someone having good evidence and i don't mean fuzzy pictures that you have to squint and pray at i mean <laughs> ones that you can actually see and believe okay yeah it's off my rant <laughs> yeah, yeah i'll just add that like yeah it i mean that's like the when i was hearing about limpkins and like wanting to go try and see the first limpkins in louisiana like i had been in louisiana for a little bit at that point and i mean it was pretty obvious that the people who makes sense right the people who live and spend their most of their life in these remote areas know way more about um what the birds are doing in their own backyards um and yeah it, it's funny like i'd see people who didn't know who would be dismissive of these people um in southeastern louisiana being like oh like surely you're just seeing juvenile white ibis because they're brown and big and have curved bills too um and then the the people who've done there are like, no, like, obviously not Ibis. I've grown up with Ibis. <laughs> um, and then would come back with their phone and be like, I saw 70 of these birds on my commute on my boat this morning and clear as day a, a photo of a limpkin. Um, so, yeah. It's the wonder of cell phones. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's great. It, it's it's great when people can can... You know, if you want to be skeptical about something, that's fine. And then there's the photo, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's neat. I think we're getting kind of close on time here. Is there anything else we want to talk about, though, Lincoln, before we wrap this up? The last thing I was going to ask Marky to say something about is because of the evolutionary biology side of me, say a little bit about the fossil record in Louisiana. Um. So in terms of Louisiana, there aren't any known records, but in terms of the Gulf Coast, there have been several bones found from places like uh, Mississippi, uh, from indigenous settlements that have shown that Limkin did have a, a wider range than uh, at least current range. Uh, there's quite a few records also from Georgia, of like egg remnants and eggshells. Uh, so these birds did have a, a larger 
a larger uh, range than, I guess, I would say current, but now they, they are not. <laughs> they have quite a large range now. Um, but they, they did range across the Gulf Coast before they sort of retreated, I guess, to, to Florida. I'm cool. still waiting for the the first one on the West Coast. Yeah, oh. I think one made it to Colorado, and then everyone's just been been waiting for them to show up in the Southwest really? or California awesome. or something. Wow. So what's the moral of the story? Keep your binoculars up when you pass, you know, agricultural fields because you never know what you're going to see. Don't pass it off as a juvenile white ibis. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yes. A special thanks to Marky e. Mutchler for joining us this week to talk about limpkins. We also want to thank all of our listeners. We love each and every one of you and can't thank you enough for your support. If you have a question for us that you'd like read and answered on the podcast, send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you always get our newest episodes sent your way. All right, see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.